Rack your look for spring at Nordstrom Rack and save up to 60% on brands you love. Rag & Bone, Vince, Marc Jacobs, Adidas, Joes, and more. Great brands, great prices every day at Nordstrom Rack. Score new dresses, denim, sandals, designer bags, and sunglasses, plus updates for the family and home. Get your spring on for less, up to 60% less, today at your Nordstrom Rack store. What will you find? The legends are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Donald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Hey everybody, it's your wizard who wrote himself into the book, Holden McNeely. That's how wizardly I am, I can write myself in and become a character. Breakfast of Champions reference, sorry spoiler alert, Jake. And it's me, your uh, bedraggled, aging voice of the counterculture who's just <laughs> begging, pleading the boomer generation to just stop supporting George W. Bush. Please Man. just, God, it's, it was like the one thing we were supposed to do is like stop being monsters. And what just- a bizarre, that's probably one of our weirder intros we've had to do for a podcast episode because we are doing part two of Kurt Vonnegut, his, uh, his later years. His prolific 80s uh, book writing into, I know, prolific 80s book writing, that's the sentence, and into his later years where he just does not really enjoy George W. Bush very much, wouldn't you know it? And uh, To be fair, he doesn't enjoy a lot of things. He's Could kind you of. Imagine, and I don't want to get too political, but we're, we have to, in a sense, because we'll be talking about Vonnegut's opinions on politics, but could you have fathomed if he was alive today? <laughs> you yeah. think George W. Bush? I was, I was laughing. I was like, Bush, oh my God, those are the days. No, that's <laughs> the thing is if Vonnegut was alive today, he would just look at everything that's happening, just take a drag of his Paul Mall cigarette and just be like, I already fucking told you guys. I already, <laughs> yeah. I warned yeah. you. This is, a, I told you this is what was going to happen. He probably would have just gotten himself crushed to death by a horse or something. <laughs> like a dramatic suicide just to like. Say fuck it to the world. Also, that soothing, lovely voice that you're hearing that's not mine or Jake's. That is our good friend, Andrew Yakira, uh, back mm. back for round two. Uh, he was joined us in the first episode, of course, uh, publishing Mogul, publishing <laughs> Giants. Andrew Yakira worked for Penguin as an editor, has... Um, uh, a tattoo in Vonnegut's handwriting on his body. Um, our poet laureate, if you will. Andrew Yakira, thank you for joining us for the second part of this. You're so welcome. I'm like, there's no way I can disappoint people after an introduction like that. So thank you. <laughs> and also, <laughs> it's just hilarious because he built a. Was that your first gaming PC that you ever built yourself? Oh, yeah. Never tried anything. Built anything his like that first gaming PC all himself. Took him all day yesterday. All he wants to do is play it right now, but we are actually going to make him talk not even about video games, but about a book, an author of books. 
Uh, so fantastic. But honestly, thank you so much for joining us for, for part two. Um, we're, this oh, is yeah, gonna be, Thanks for having me. This will be a wild ride. So when we last left our hero, he was, you know, this Indiana boy, the son of uh, fallen high socialites. He kind of fucked around and found out that he had to go to World War II. Afterwards, he struggled to become Don't a writer. Don't you hate it when you fuck around and find out that you have to go to World <laughs> War II? I have <laughs> fucked around and found out so many times in my life, and I never found out that hard. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, after years of uh, writing in obscurity, he has a breakthrough uh, with Slaughterhouse-Five, and it opens his entire world. He becomes a landmark figure to the emerging 60s counterculture. He becomes a best-selling author. Uh, he's able to finally support his uh, family, although that's becoming quickly in a strange situation. But the process of writing Slaughterhouse-Five was almost his entire life of processing those emotions, trying to figure out how do you tell a war story when your own role in it was so uh, kind of not heroic? And what does that mm-hmm. mean for the greater society? And it finally he finally got that book out of him with magnificent results to the point where he actually, in a quote, says... I felt after I finished Slaughterhouse-Five that I didn't have to write at all anymore if I didn't want to. It was the end of some sort of career. And in a lot of, t- there were, it was, in a lot of ways, he was maybe never actually going to write another book. But he was finding himself with this massive popularity with the younger group of people. This was surprising to him. He said, I, I truly don't know uh, when, asked, when he was asked about why he was so popular with the youth, why his books were. I certainly didn't go after the youth market or anything like that. I didn't have my fingers on any pulse. I was simply writing. Maybe it's because I deal with sophomore questions that full adults regard as settled. I talk about what is godlike. What could he want? Is there a heaven? And if there is, what would it be like? This is what college sophomores are into. These are the questions that in, that they enjoy having discussed. And more mature people find these subjects very tiresome, as though they've settled. I mean, you even said, Drew, you you went through a big... I think we all go, a lot of us, if we're into works of fiction, we all go through a Vonnegut phase, right? But how old were you when you went through your Vonnegut phase, let's call it? It was like right but when I was ending college and right. then right when I moved up to New York, so like 2006, 2007. So that was a perfect time to be involved in him because basically when I was graduating college, I still had the mentality of a college sophomore. <laughs> um, but he also, he has a tendency to do this and it's what I love about Vonnegut too. And uh, he just is very humble and um, kind of talks down about his own topics, even though they're also clearly universally regarded and, and seen as worth talking about. I mean, watching... Just watching it in our time with George R. R. Martin and uh, even um, Patrick Rothfuss, uh, of course, of our favorite unfinished book series, uh, the Man with No Name series. What's the actual formal title? Name of the Wind. Name King of the Killer Wind. Chron- Name yeah. of the Wind. King Killer Chronicles. King Killer Chronicles. Yeah. You you see in real time these authors gain great success and how it changes their lives in be- good and negative ways. Vonnegut said of his success, I'm just sorry it didn't happen sooner because I was really very broke for a long time when I had a lot of children. I could have bought neat vacations and wonderful playthings and so forth. Now that they're all grown, the money has a slightly mocking quality. <laughs> that's one of the things that's ridiculous about the economy as far as writers go. They either get $50 for something or $500,000, and there doesn't seem to be much in between. Can you attest to that? Have you known much, Drew, about 
uh, artists, uh, author salaries. Like, what is the yeah. what is the state of that well, yeah. today? Yeah, what- I did acquisitions. It's I'm really happy because I put a note here just to tell you guys that absolutely nothing has changed about. This. <laughs> that surprises me true. a little bit, just because of uh, the range of access that people have. Yeah. To, you're either to, writing for prestige and you're getting a stipend, basically, or you're okay. a professional writer, which is fewer far between, and you're making hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars on each advance. What do you What do you mean by writing for prestige? Well, writing as like a, as a thing that you can it's it's a it's a laurel. It's like oh, I'm a published author among all these other things that I do. I'm a teacher. I'm a professor. or Whatever. And uh, you're not so much doing it for the advance, which is a nice little cherry on top, but you're doing it more as something for your resume. In our business, it's doing it for exposure, which uh, (laughs) is is a big thing. Uh, Oh, I'm just doing it for exposure. Or people who hit you up and say, can you give me hundreds of dollars worth of your time for no money, but you'll get exposure. That's always the... (laughs) Yeah, it's one, literally one step above that. Yeah. <laughs> We're not going to give you nothing. We're going to give you as close to nothing as possible. What's like an average stipend? I mean, for beginning authors, it really is something like 5000 to $10,000. Um, and then, you know, the biggest advances I ever paid, and I was in a small, little, tiny imprint at a large publishing house, was in the tens of thousands or okay. maybe six figures sometimes for like our biggest author. Yeah, what was, but, can you talk a little bit about your imprint? We don't have to, like, name the imprint or anything like yeah, that. Yeah, it was but. a small body, mind, spirit imprint at Penguin okay. Random House. So it was a lot of, like, first-time authors, a lot of self-help, a lot of business light, you'd call it. Uh, a lot of really fun, weird spirituality titles and, you know, paranormal stuff. And the stipend you're talking about, that was, um, that's just... For like, how many months is that? It, essentially, it's as long as they can probably take to finish. But I mean, how many? Well, generally? I refer to it as a stipend, but it's called an advance, and it's an advance on right. royalties, actually. Right. So it's actually money up front that you then have to earn back with cool. the sales of your books uh, before <laughs> you actually start making royalties. Off so you're of trying your to just get that book done as fast as possible at that point. Yeah, and you also get paid in thirds or quarters generally. So you get a third on signing, a third when you deliver the manuscript, and then another third, or they'll break out into a fourth payment if they can get away with it. So you're talking about like five grand over the course of 18 months paid oh in quarters God. and then taxed every time. Oh my God. Anyway, so publishing is great. That's all, I mean, this is why you're here. So that's that, that is the business <laughs> end of this stuff is fascinating to me i know a lot more about the business end of entertainment you know television film stuff like that but so going back to vonnegut Mm -hmm. um he's still under contract from i believe it's delacorte uh slaughterhouse five was an amazing hit but he's still you know contracted to put out more books he is feeling kind of cooped up at his home in uh cape cod you know he has still a bunch of kids around uh, his wife is getting into a lot of uh, Jane is getting into a lot of new age stuff that he finds like kind of, you know, in his cynical heart. He just doesn't think are very rational. Is it also Christianity, though, as well? It's, it's a hodgepodge. It okay. literally is. She just uh, becomes very spiritual, very spiritual in a way that's grating to him because he's very not spiritual. Yeah. He is so eager to get out of the house that he actually agrees in 1969 to get on a plane with an author friend of his to Biafra, which was a conflict zone that had seceded from Nigeria. (laughs) And he actually goes out and visits a rebel training camp that is actively getting shelled. (laughs) And he just has an immediate, like, flashback. He's still smoking a cigarette while the artillery is raining down around him, knowing that they're just, like, kind of, 
uh, triangulating in on the camp as the explosions are happening a little bit closer, a little bit closer, a little bit closer. He writes about it for McCall's magazine. <laughs> I do you know this shit, Yeah, uh, it's, <laughs> it's an insane just little side note. But in February 1970, after that, still feeling cooped up, he makes a lot of big moves. Uh, mm-hmm. He uh, gets a new literary agent. He kind of... Uh, we talked about his friend Knox Berger, who kind of guided him from wayward author to at least published magazine author and was an early champion of his books. He drops Berger after Berger had like reached out to him because he was spinning off to start his own literary agency. And it, it caused a lot of fissures. He was breaking a lot of like longtime bonds. But his biggest project was a play. He was ready to take the stage and use his newfound kind of cachet to move to New York. It was uh, Happy Birthday, Wanda June. Yes. Now, this play was not a success. Is that correct? It was not a great success, but it still got him to Greenwich Village in New York. He met a a woman named Jill Cremens, who was this intensely driven photographer. She was a woman in her 20s in an era where, like, a young woman had no kind of... She was extremely out of her element, but she was just so aggressive in pursuing her subjects and she wanted to capture the American writers in their prime in New York. And she had focused on Kurt as a subject and after not long, the two had started an affair. So all of a sudden, Vonnegut is now as part of the New York artistic elite. He's attending fancy dinner parties, going to premieres, he's giving more magazine interviews, and he's getting a taste of that interesting writer's life that he's always been pursuing. The one that he kind of resented his wife and his family for kind of keeping him away from. Right. And now they can't because he's in New York doing all this while she's stuck in, I believe, Cape Cod still. Right. And another big part of it, he mentions it before, but all the kids are out of the house. What happens when all the kids get out of the house? Well, the the lens, the focus gets back on their relationship and their marriage. And I think he was just like, I'm out. Peace. Meanwhile, His son, Mark, has a mental breakdown, which leads to hospitalization, and this exacerbated Vonnegut's own depression, and it actually ended up leading him to get prescribed Ritalin. Mark would later write about this experience in a book called The Eden Express, a memoir on insanity, which sounds really interesting because Mark later goes to medical school and becomes an expert on uh, uh, drugs, on medication for people. So he has both perspectives of both the victim and the person trying to solve the the issue uh, and very fascinating. Mark's breakdown is fascinating. He went to like British Columbia to start a commune where he would go on prolonged hunger and water fasts and just like stare at a candle for 12 days straight until his mind broke. The whole time Vonnegut's actually in LA uh, because Slaughterhouse-Five was being turned into a movie. Yes. And, uh, Pretty good movie. I mean, he Vonnegut was very happy with the results mm-hmm. of that film. It was released in 1972. I definitely have seen it. It's been a while. But it's always nice when the author himself is quite pleased with the results, for sure. He was a little bit hurt because he had uh, he had actually shot a scene as a cameo. As I forget the character's name, but there's uh, at one point Billy Pilgrim's in an army hospital and he's talking to an official government historian who won't believe him about the Dresden bombing. And Vonnegut plays the government guy. They had to reshoot that scene without him because the director claims the actor who played Billy Pilgrim, his old age makeup was just too shitty. 
it just ruined the scene. It was too distracting. Uh. But Vonnegut uh, wrote back to the director saying, you can at least be honest with me and tell me I sucked. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I yes. couldn't imagine him being a great actor. <laughs> Another thing about Mark's uh, book, the uh, the Eden book, is that up until that point, there really hadn't been a prominent memoir about mental illness and going through the mental health system in America that wasn't written uh, anonymously. And the fact mm. that he put his own name on it was a very revolutionary oh, wow. act at that time. Oh, amazing. And again, to have the commitment to follow through and become, I, I don't remember specifically what ex- type of expert he became in in pharmaceuticals and things and how to help people with their brain chemistry, but he did, and that's really amazing. But Vonnegut is still struggling as a writer. He said, I felt after I finished Slaughterhouse-Five that I didn't have to write at all anymore if I didn't want to. It was the end of some sort of career. I don't know why exactly. I suppose the flowers, when they're through blooming, have some sort of awareness of some purpose having been served. Flowers didn't ask to be flowers, and I didn't ask to be me. At the end of Slaughterhouse-Five, I had the feeling that I had produced this blossom. So I had a shutting-off feeling, you know, that I have done what I was supposed to do, and everything was okay. And that was the end of it. I could figure out my missions for myself after that. But he did have one book he was sitting on, and that is because he actually was writing it all as one book. And it ended up splintering out. Breakfast of Champions, according to Vonnegut, they were originally one whole piece, and then slowly he separated the two, like some Slaughterhouse Five and Breakfast of Champions. And Breakfast of Champions, that they were both probably you know elements of like him writing himself in. Spoiler alert! Sorry, but we have to talk about it. And different elements of that, I bet, happen. He was trying to get that into Slaughterhouse Five. So I think that that's the only thing that kept him writing was the fact that he knew he was sitting on a second book that that diverged that that splintered off from that original book and um it's also working through a lot of breakfast of champions is through a lot of the mental health and brain chemistry and issues vonnegut himself had been de- uh, battling with and, and he talks about how the ritalin was prescribed to him because he would just sleep all day he, and that's definitely a sign of depression he would just he he even talked about how it was like he would just go he would just like have these movie filmic experiences all day in his sleep and he would rather live in those situations. And honestly, I, I had a weird year where I was unemployed for an entire year. And I did a lot of that. I slept a lot because it was just like, might as well just be in my fun sleep world. You know what I mean? Instead of just like sweating in my apartment in the middle of the summer because like I don't have an air conditioner. And you know what I mean? Or job or reason to do anything at all whatsoever for an entire year. So, <laughs> uh, but yes, the novel centers around his sci-fi author, Kilgore Trout, now playing a protagonist, and a wealthy businessman named Dwayne Hoover, who steadily becomes more and more mentally unstable. Another character is, as I mentioned before, Vonnegut himself, who appears as the creator of the universe, there to free Trout as the only individual in the universe with free will. I actually can I had... Just, yeah, go, can go I just on. ask why all authors are like this <laughs> at this one point? This, why Please do explain. all authors... The creator of the universe thing... Yeah. Where he has to like free his characters from. And then Stephen King does it too yep. in the Dark Tower. And yep. it's just like, how can you not see the, the Freudian yeah. <laughs> implications here? <laughs> I, it's the same way that in every JRPG, you always end up fighting God themselves. <laughs> yeah. No matter what the plot is, like at some point yes. at hour 117, you are just literally fighting the be-all, end-all <laughs> of creation itself. And it's because you tell stories and they're so sprawling and your mind is so reached out 
that you finally hit the edge and like what else can you do but destroy the universe? <laughs> yes. Yeah. And that, and he really felt like, and that makes so much sense for this point in his career, because he really did feel like he was hitting a peak. Uh, he was, he'd hit like an end point in a certain sense. He even talks about in the book about being 50 years old and about how he wants to purge himself of mental clutter. He almost wants to start fresh. And you kind of get that with his work in the 80s, especially as he goes in different directions and almost evolves into a different author in a lot of ways. Vonnegut said, what I say didactically in the introduction of Breakfast of Champions is that I can't live without a culture anymore, that I realize I don't have one. What passes for a culture in my head is really a bunch of commercials, and this is intolerable. It may be impossible to live without a culture. Of course, Breakfast of Champions is, that's what, Kellogg's? Mm. Yeah. Wheaties. He routinely Wheaties. actually says this has nothing to do with Wheaties, which as I must uh, <laughs> legally remind you is a fantastic cereal <laughs> so so yeah and and that really is I, so this is you know reading cat's cradle all of his work fundamentally yes it deals with free will it deals with the nature of god every book it deals with the nature of community and how communities exist and how they they should exist and could exist slapstick is going to be a, almost 100 percent about this which is his next book which we'll talk about in just a little bit but it's constantly about a man untethered, searching for some form of community, searching for something to, to, to hang your hat on and, and, and reminiscing and saddened that you couldn't be a part of a, a, the way communities were back in the old days where a neighborhood really was such a communal uh, connected device. I, I might get to this quote later. I can't remember if I pulled it or not, but essentially he was even like, if you got into a fight with your wife, you would just go down the street and crash at your cousins or a family friends for a week and then get back together a week late. Like, like, in other words, if something's wrong in your life, the whole community pitches in to help solve the issue and to help fix things. And it makes a lot of sense that he would be, feel so untethered because look what he's doing. He's he, he left his family situation in Cape Cod. He went to New York. He started this whole other bubble. But he's constantly moving. He's constantly, he, can, he can never sit still, it seems like. And therefore, he's lacking this thing that he's trying to preach to other people to try to build in their lives. Their caress. It seems like what he's really yearning for is the innocence of childhood. When he keeps mentioning community and family and connection, it almost always kind of yearns back to when he was hanging out at the family lake house with his uncle Alex and all of his siblings and just everything was taken care of because... The, even the community that he's looking for, even that kind of hominess, you know, in his own biography, it's fraught with so much sadness and so much disappointment and so much depression <laughs> that it's almost like even that's not the right answer. In the meantime, you know, he's living this very cosmopolitan life. He's uh, going back and forth, uh, yeah, to Cape Cod where it, things are very chilly between him and Jane. At some point, I, I just don't know how this fits into our greater story, but it needs to be acknowledged. Sure. His uh, oldest daughter, Edie, uh, marries Geraldo Rivera. <laughs> I didn't know that. That's a young Geraldo <laughs> Rivera is in the picture in this story. <laughs> oh, God help us. Did they stay together? No, they didn't stay together. They didn't right? stay together. Right? Uh, they, by the 80s, they've split up. But After the vault didn't work out when he tried to uh, open Al Capone's it was definitely, vault. Yeah, it was definitely Al Capone's vault Let's that, do it live. that shredded the marriage. <laughs> 
Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Donald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Donald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Uh, another thing, too, that happens in this book that I think is another testament for him wanting to create community within himself is he's bringing in characters from other books. He brings in Elliot w- Rosewater from God Bless You, Mr. Rosewater. He brings in Francine Pefko, who is a character in Cat's Cradle. Again, I think he's trying to manufacture communities within his own brain, mm. creative mind. Another major theme of this book and something that's going to come up later as well is suicide. Kurt Vonnegut said, suicide is at the heart of the book. It's also the punctuation mark at the end of many artistic careers. I pick up that punctuation mark and play with it in the book, come to understand it better, put it back on the shelf again, but leave it in view. My fascination with it, the fascination of many people with it, may be a legacy from the Great Depression. That depression has more to do with the American character than any war. People felt so useless for so long. The machines fired everybody. It was as though they had no interest in human beings anymore. So when I was a little kid, getting my empty head filled up with this and that, I saw and listened to thousands of people who couldn't follow their trades anymore, who couldn't feed their families. A hell of a lot of them didn't want to go on much longer. They wanted to die because they were so embarrassed. I think young people detect that dislike for life in my generation often learned from our grandparents during the Great Depression. It gives them the creeps. Young people sense our envy, too. Another thing we learned to do during the 30s, to hunger for material junk, to envy people who had it. The big secret of our generation is that we don't like life much. Ha-ha! Is it time for Boner Bird to re-enter the... <laughs> no, no. Boner Bird is a thing of the past. We can't... <sighs> oh my god, you found the bird seed I left for you. And the Viagra. All right, well, see you later! <laughs> he really is... Um... He really is prescient in a way, though, and mm. I feel like this quote kind of talks a lot about things that still feel very real today, and I don't know if he's prescient or timeless so much as, like, just the perennial author of, like, the mm. 21st century. He, he, he got, well, the 20th century and then kind of subsequently the 21st century, but he just, like, he seems to just get it in a way that that still kind of endures today. I'm I'm we're, I'm going to get to some quotes later that upset me how much more true they are today in today's yeah. political climate, social climate than they ever were when he first talked about it. And I was like, oh, my God, if you switched out some names here, it would be 100 percent just what's ha- happening right now. And we'll get there. But man, always ahead of it. And as best evidence, by the way, my favorite thing was like. He was doing for World War II what everybody else ended up doing with Vietnam in the 60s. He was so he was a full war ahead of the social consciousness around war in America. It was also a little bit awkward for him because even though his office was getting flooded with fan mail from every imaginable type of young revolutionary and hippie, 
he wasn't that like revolutionary at that point in his life. And I couldn't believe Breakfast of Champions got panned. I had no idea. I thought it was like known as one of his greater works and had been from the moment it was released. But he's starting to really get shat on critically during this time. Yeah, the response to the novel, it's definitely, again, he just wants to be part of the great community of writers and... Ever since his older works, even at Sirens of Titan, they are just not giving him that. He's getting all this positive feedback, but not from the people that he wants it from. Mm-hmm. In fact, it's uh, in the biography that I'm reading, there's a just very awkward conflagration where the psychedelic rockers Jefferson Starship actually arrange a meeting with him because <laughs> they want to do a concept album based on his work. Uh, or I'm sorry, at the time they were Jefferson Airplane. Okay, I don't want please, our, our Jake, psychedelic right. rock Jefferson fans. Jefferson Airplane, Starship came later. It's very true. Uh, but when they arrived at the brainstorm session, he was wearing a Brooks Brothers suit and black wingtips. And afterwards they said, the vibrations were just awful. They wanted out of there as fast as possible. The vibrations. Yeah, dude. It's Well, again, he never asked to be this counterculture icon he just kind of fell into it i don't see how they ever thought that that would work in the first (laughs) place but (laughs) it's so funny because i guess i think you you can read his books one way and see a very like um i don't want to say flighty but a very like jovial whimsical natured person but then you read them in a different light and you're like oh this fucking guy hates life this guy yeah. hates the world. You know what I mean? Like He's sad and he's angry, but he's still hopeful. Yeah. Well, that's the thing is all of his books, even after, after Slaughterhouse-Five, he starts adding uh, prologues to his previous books to mm. continue adding himself to the story, especially with Breakfast of Champions. But he's like more so than any other American writer. It's almost like a proto blogger kind of thing where his mm. readers really are getting a sense of who he is. His uh-huh. journey. Uh, you know, it's a level of intimacy that you know, a normal writer wouldn't, a novelist wouldn't share. But everything ends up becoming biographical in his work. So people are walking up to him like they know the guy only to get weird vibrations because he is this dude in his 50s who's invested in you know the stock market and trying to make sure his kids have enough to eat and want to make sure he gets invited to the right dinner parties more so than like throwing molotovs at the senate right right yeah it's like people who try to go visit salinger at his house and get a wonderful surprise uh, (laughs) that experience but uh yes his next book again very close to home very close to his relationship with his sister, and that would be Slapstick, the sci-fi book that came out in 1976 that centers around a brother and sister team that, when together, became a powerful, intelligent, and creative force who create a plan to end loneliness in America by artificially creating extended family networks. Again, community! This largely was Vonnegut working through his own issues growing up and is very much a mirror of his relationship with his sister, who shared a love of slapstick humor with him until she died in 1958 and referred to it as, quote, the closest thing to an autobiography I'll ever write, Cutter Vonnegut said. Until recent times, you know, human beings usually had a permanent community of relatives. They had dozens of homes to go to. This is that quote I referred to earlier. So when a married couple had a fight, one or the other could go to a house three doors down 
down and stay with a close relative until he was feeling tender again. Or if a kid was so fed up with his parents that he couldn't stand it, he could march over to his uncle's for a while. And this is no longer possible. Each family is locked into its little box. The neighbors aren't relatives. They aren't other There aren't other houses where people can go and be cared for. And I will agree with this, man, because when I grew up, I didn't have any neighborhood friends. My brother did, so it was a little bit different for him. I had no neighborhood friends. And I even looking back at it, I still feel like my parents are weirdly, I mean, now more than ever, obviously, but weirdly like locked away. Everybody is in their little box on the neighborhood street. There, there's very little interaction with each other. And I guess they want it that way. But I do. I did remember a sense of that when I went to my buddy Ben's house because he had just a very warm, open family that loved having other kids over and it, it really was a place to go where not only could I hang out and laugh with my friends but I could like talk to his, Ben's mom about like my dating life and stuff like that and 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 hang out with like Ben's younger brothers and get and get a perspective on on you know what's going on with kids a few years younger than me during that particular time and those were really valuable to the point where I was always going to Ben's you know shout out to Ben shout out to Ben <laughs> By this point in his life, by 1976, uh, the divo- he finally divorces uh, Jane, uh, which had various stages of acrimony and amiableness. Uh, it reached ahead when um, he suggested that she continue to manage the household expenses and just give him an allowance while still also helping him edit his books. Wow. Which uh, she was like, that's fucked up, you weird baby man. Also, I did read an article about how she maybe had one of those classic stories of her having a bigger role than mm-hmm. we ever knew in his early work, especially. Oh, absolutely. He would not be who he was if she didn't give him the feedback and the support that he had. Yeah, he actually, yeah, he didn't think he was, uh, he thought he was total shit. And she was the one who was trying to convince him that he could be the next great American novelist. It's very much the same way that George Lucas's wife is the one who actually edited Star Wars into something that people would pay to watch. (laughs) Yes, very similar. And there's so many of the, the, this is the classic story of the woman behind the man that not getting nearly enough credit. And now you have Jill in the picture. The, those two marry in 1979. Well, wait, wait, wait. There's So there's a lot happening. Please. Okay, yeah, yeah. So not only is he living with uh, Jill, but he's also reignited uh, his affair with Lori Rackstra, who was the woman who he hooked up with at the uh, creative writing workshop in mm. Iowa. Uh, her husband recently uh, committed suicide. And she was back on the market, and they just began engaging as friends. The two actually took a trip together. This is actually a very interesting thing. While on a vacation to Key West, he gets a call from a struggling science fiction writer named Philip Jose Farmer, who politely asks if he can actually use the pen name Kilgore Trout in a science fiction book he's trying to write. Uh, Only later, after having given him permission... Did Vonnegut realize that the book was a total send up of his own work, an actual parody called Venus on the Half Shell, <laughs> uh, introducing such concepts as a planet inhabited by car tires where the leader was a white wall, uh, as well as a holy man who eats every pilgrim who comes to him to learn the truth. And critics loved it and it sold hundreds of thousands of copies and Vonnegut was super pissed off that he just signed away the rights to a book that was just clowning on him. That is amazing. He actually starts a lawsuit with another
another uh, creative, a film student who had, without his permission, did a student film for uh, based on one of his one act plays. And he had a lengthy legal battle with this guy just over just the rights of a writer to like be able to say, like, you need to ask me for this first, to which the film creator actually kind of nailed him on this. Uh, which was like, I'm sorry, I had just assumed that the writer would be like the person he was in the books where he says what kind of person he is. <laughs> <laughs> That's incredible. Does that get us up to the marriage? At this point, uh, you know, yeah, he's uh, living with Jill. Uh, Jane ends up marrying or at least hooking up with a guy named Adam Yarmoliski, who is a Harvard professor with his own incredibly uh, sweet and good-natured personality. Uh, he actually was going to work in the White House, but his nomination with, was withdrawn because con, uh, conservative senators objected to his uh, work on desegregation. Uh, she ends up moving to D.C. Her family... There's just the one anecdote that I... Uh, their oldest daughter, Edie, uh, famously marrying uh, Geraldo Rivera, talks about how Jane's second husband... Uh, had called her asking for that great recipe for the sandwich she had made uh, when he visited Cape Cod, to which Edie had to say, do you mean a grilled cheese? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I was going to say, what the hell is a sandwich recipe? (laughs) I know, right, yeah. (laughs) That is so funny. So yeah, they they get married in 1979. He adopts her daughter when the baby was three days old. And throughout the 80s, we are getting way back into writing big time. The first of these novels is called Jailbird. It's about the life of a man who is just getting out of jail for having a small part in the Watergate scandal and is referred to as Vonnegut's clear, quote, Vonnegut's clearest articulation of sympathies with the labor movement, end quote, and deals in subjects such as McCarthyism and the Nixon administration. Of course, Watergate being a big part of it, Watergate is Nixon's downfall when he sent people to uh, the Democratic uh, headquarters to steal documents and they totally got busted in doing that and that's why he ended up resigning and definitely deals with hypocrisy and uh, just a lot of stuff that ends up rehappening a bunch over and over again with certain presidents in the future. But also, it's around this time where he takes a little bit of a turn, and I think maybe it's because of the pressure critically. See, essentially, Breakfast of Champions and Slapstick are the main criticism is that he's just completely jumping off of actual storytelling. And take that for whatever you will. I love Breakfast of Champions. I love how bonkers it is. But I could definitely see how it doesn't really stick to any sort of formal through line. Uh, We just talked about this last time where uh, he just has a kind of a very odd way of storytelling. And Mm -hmm. it's it's something that works for him in a way that I feel like I would hate in a lot of other authors. But it's it just... Oh, I think we talked about it last time because I said that all of his books kind of just blurred into one for me. And it's just uh-huh. because of this way he tells stories. It just feels like he's in the room with you telling you a story. The narrator is just always kind of clearly him, even when it's one of his characters. And it's just this very unique thing that he made work that I feel like breaks all of the rules of traditional fiction writing. Um, it just makes me wonder if I would have, you know, rejected his manuscript if it came across my desk. Yeah, yeah, I wonder, which right? Which I very likely would have, because if I didn't know anything about the man behind the story, I would have been like, this is, this writing is 
awful. <laughs> <laughs> but he really doubles down on that style, and it's it's what is so uniquely Vonnegut. But he definitely hits a high watermark in Slaughterhouse Five, and just can't quite get back to that in terms of these other books. And I think finally just broke down and said, "Final, tell fucking stories." After that came Dead Eye Dick, about a man who struggles with the guilt of accidentally killing someone as a child, and later confronts the event of his uh, hometown being destroyed by a neutron bomb. This, I believe, did get some solid reviews by critics. People are starting to bring him back into the fold, I guess, in terms of receiving him well. The snooty ones that don't matter at the end of the day, but he cared about it, obviously. And this is where we get to this suicide attempt. Jake, I think you may know more on this than I did. I tried to dig around a little bit, but I will say he attempts suicide via a sleeping pill overdose in 1984. He later wrote about it, stating that, quote, for whatever reason, American humorists or satirists or whatever you want to call them, those who choose to laugh rather than weep about demoralizing information become intolerably unfunny pessimists if they live past a certain age. So he was married to Jill. They were living in a brownstone uh, near the UN building in Manhattan. And they had adopted a daughter together after a previous attempt to have a child uh, naturally, uh, unfortunately ended in a miscarriage. And he was feeling kind of uh, trapped. He was not as happy in the relationship with Jill as he once was, or in a way, their relationship is very complicated because, you know, she was a very ambitious person that sought him out at a moment when he was very vulnerable. And together, she was his gateway to this world of New York elite arts that he genuinely liked being a part of, but it also felt alienated from because he was never receiving the same critical laudings as some of his contemporaries. So uh, in a incident that uh, is recounted in Laurie's biography of him, Love is Always Kurt, she talks about how the two who were still friendly with each other uh, had reconnected at a conference and he invited her to come see the new baby together. And once she was in the same, you know, once he invited Laurie into his and Jill's house to actually play with their daughter, Jill was very icy to him and very upset with that kind of breach of at least the illusion of, you know, kind of fealty and fidelity. Uh, shortly thereafterwards, uh, in March of 1984, the month I was born, oddly enough. Fantastic. Don Farber, one of Kurt's friends, called his private phone number just to catch up and there was no answer. Uh, this was unlike Kurt. Kurt had always woken up at the crack of dawn to get his start writing. That was his regimen. He called again at noon and still didn't get an answer. So he came over to the apartment and found Kurt unconscious from a combination of alcohol, sleeping pills, and an overdose of his antidepressants. Jill insisted that they shouldn't call an ambulance, that they should call a private car and go to a small psychiatric clinic on the Upper East Side. Uh, Don said there was no time. They had to call an ambulance and take him to nearby St. Vincent's Hospital. And while they were still fighting, Kurt actually stirred and opened his eyes. And all he could muster was, take me to St. Vincent's. Um, after which he passed out again. So they called the ambulance. Mark, his own son, who we talked about his own struggle with mental health, actually said that uh, he decided that it really wasn't a true, you know, a, a for good suicide attempt. It was probably a cry for help and that the motives were typical of many people who attempt suicide, which is 
to act out their own guilt and sense of, you know, revenge fantasy by kind of offloading their own anger onto the onto the people around him. It was kind of, unfortunately, at least according to Mark, his son, like this self-destructive kind of I told you so, which is not very healthy, but he recovered very quickly. But afterwards, he quickly wanted to get out of Jill's orbit and he moved to uh, a two-room studio in Greenwich Village away from her. That was his only suicide attempt, though, right? I believe so. Yeah, okay. It's just, yeah, it's such a, wow. It's so intense that he did that in, in the mid-'80s and then ended up living until into the 2000s and didn't ever try it again or yeah. anything. And the thing, that you, the, th- the thing that you said about people like this becoming an intolerably unfunny pessimist is yeah. what Vonnegut said. Is I, I think you and Jake, too, I'm sure you're working in comedy, and just me being tangential to comedy for so many years, with, you know, knowing all for the sure. mutual people that me and Holden know. I mean, You're I think like this an honorary as... comedian at this point. Thanks, buddy. <laughs> I'm just saying, I think it doesn't come as a surprise to anyone who, who no. knows this kind of crowd, but it, maybe it does to people who don't. But a lot of comedians like to laugh through the pain. You know? Yeah, a lot of comedians either burn out on drugs or commit suicide. I mean, that is definitely. Um, Something that happens. It does seem weird from the outside looking in. I yeah. can see that. But I think people who, who know this crowd aren't surprised. And right. in tons of speeches and even in his own books, he would decry suicide, you know, saying that, yeah. uh, especially with his experience with his mother, you know, it's something that for the sake of the people who come after you, you have to like willingly choose not to do it as just so other people don't carry that sadness. and. Mm. Once again, that disconnect between the the philosopher, the tussled-haired philosopher, and the man behind the books is just really apparent. Well, and two, it's like he's laughing or trying to make light and jokes out of this stuff in the past, because if he doesn't, he probably would feel suicidal. And I think after a while, you just get exhausted keeping that in check by doing that. And you essentially have to find some sort of other way to cope with these things. Uh, all right, let's get to Galapagos. Uh, I'm, I'm excited to get to this one because I know Drew has revisited this one recently. Um, and this is a... The premise sounds bonkers. Yeah, it That's, is. It's wonderful. It purports that the, quote, oversized human brain may just be the factor that leads to our extinction. I do want to correct you on one thing there because it's not really our extinction. It's kind of our perfection. Okay. Uh, the narrator of the book is a human a million years into the future essentially and he you get through context clues that he has fur like a seal and he doesn't really have hands anymore and the humans have evolved into this being and he does keep saying you know people had really big brains back then and it caused a lot of problems for them and he just kind of goes through a (laughs) litany of all the world's problems that are caused by ours just having brains that are too large for anybody's good and how how much better it is now a million years later because he's just like i didn't have to steal because if i'm hungry i just go i jump into the ocean and i get a fish and i eat it (laughs) and people just kind of revolve into these animals again yeah you can't Um, envy someone else's luxuries like he complained about uh, yeah. was a product of the 30s, you know, these sorts of things that we do that we do deal with and that makes us insane and makes us do terrible things. Yeah, I can see how he's making an argument that, you know, we we're we're in a bad way. 
and just wars and economies. There's a whole economic collapse going on in, yes. in the premise in Galapagos. And, and it's just like all these problems were just, I mean, you know, there was this collapse in the economy, which is this thing called money, which isn't real. But humans' big brains made them think it was real and very important. <laughs> it's kind of the, the tone of the narrator throughout is just this uh, very kind of silly seal, I guess, human, half human, half seal thing. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of McDonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Hey, Hotels.com here. Tired of the everyday? We know a hotel that's ready to unwind this weekend. Book hotels with spas in the Hotels.com app. Find your perfect somewhere. How would you say his writing evolves, has evolved at this point from, let's say, Slaughterhouse-Five, Cat's Cradle, that sort of stuff? This one, I I like Galapagos too, and that's why I went back to it, because it's one that doesn't get talked about a lot, but it's one of my, I remember it being one of my favorites of his, and it, it is, I think it is because it, veers away from this style that I was being really hypercritical of a little bit earlier of just sitting there telling you a story like sit on old uncle Kurt's knee and he's going to tell you a story and that's how so many of his books feel Mm -hmm. this one actually does tell a story and there are characters in the story really solidly defined although he still doesn't do a lot of experimentation with dialogue or anything like that he doesn't flesh his characters out all he just kind of tells you facts about them and Mm -hmm describes their conversations to you rather than letting you hear the actual words they use and things like that. So he maintains that kind of Vonnegut quality, but at the same time, it's more of a, of a traditional story. Is the chapter style similar or is it longer winded chapters? No, like it's, it's still the jaunt, little snippets. jaunty little snippets. Yeah. Okay. The chapters as long as it needs to be for Vonnegut. And that's yep. his he does do this fun thing, which does serves no purpose that I can discern, but he keeps saying some of these characters aren't going to survive. And he's just like, and to, so you keep clear which characters aren't going to survive. I'm going to put a little star by their names. <laughs> so there's certain characters in the book that just every time their name is presented, there's a star by it to remind you that they're going to die for some reason. (laughs) That's just weird. That's fantastic. I love it. It also should be noted that in 1985, the same year that Galapagos was released, he had what was probably his biggest cultural impact of that era, uh, his cameo appearance in Back to School starring Rodney Dangerfield. I love that he's in Back to School. It's the best. Uh, I could see Vonnegut really liking Rodney Dangerfield as well. And there you go. He 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 totally makes his film come back after getting brutally cut out of the book, the adaptation of his own movie. And uh, I love that he's in it. Back to School, of course, is a lovely, a lovely 80s film starring Rodney Dangerfield, a man we definitely need to cover at some point. It's also a great to one of his greatest uh, conflicts in his career, which was, you know, his just how critics just did not get him the way he thought he should be gotten in which, uh, you know, in the movie, Rodney Dangerfield's character literally hires Vonnegut to write a paper for him about the works of (laughs) Kurt Vonnegut. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> to which Dangerfield's professor goes, whoever did write this doesn't know the first thing about Kurt Vonnegut. <laughs> That's Meaning amazing. That 
obviously poking it. fun of the fact that throughout his career, people who don't know what they're talking about it's are so decrying his work. Fucking awesome. Uh, all right. Next up, we've got Bluebeard in 1987. It, uh, it follows an abstract painter who has a secret painting in his barn that he refuses to show. Not only not just some abstract painter, the painter from Breakfast of Champions. Yes. Uh, a woman is trying to essentially seduce him into showing her this painting. Uh, the painting itself loosely resembles, uh, I'm sorry, the story itself loosely resembles the French fairy tale of Bluebeard about a guy who marries and kills several wives and the attempts of one wife to not share a similar fate. This also seems to be Vonnegut con- commenting and uh, contemplating creating meaningful art and the difference between, you know, and because it's always going back to this secret painting in the barn this one painting, and it is a devastating image, I believe. It's a very violent image, this image in the barn. It, it, it's essentially Slaughterhouse-Five is the image in the barn, it, it feels like. And uh, it's very fascinating. I think an artist pondering on his previous work and the value of different art and the value of, of, of his different creations, essentially, is what it seems like. Very fascinating book. And uh, that is the precursor to Hocus Pocus, his final big book from his from the 80s. Hocus Pocus came out in 1990, and it's about a Vietnam War vet and college professor who ends up working at a nearby prison until a prison break ensues. And themes include the war, class, and prejudice, among other things. And this is what's going to push us into a lot of his later career being a lot of just commenting on American society, commenting on war, commenting on the government and things like that. It it really just becomes uh, essentially he was doing all this metaphorical musing stuff about God and creation. And that's slowly going to slide into just a grumpy old man who fucking hates the government and the country he now lives in. And, and, you know, not, and, and not necessarily for, Bad reasoning, you know. Uh, Hocus Pocus, if you want to talk about jaunty Vonnegut writing, is kind of the epitome of that. Because as I remember Hocus Pocus, the premise of it is that Kurt Vonnegut himself has edited together a bunch of notes that were written on, like, cocktail napkins or something like that. (laughs) And so each... You know, each paragraph is separated by like, you know, a wingding or something like that. So each paragraph is almost like a small little chapter. And it's it's mm. it's very, uh, very ambitious writing. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. And uh, it's so weird. So he's a teacher. He starts working at the prison. Then there's a prison break and they end up going to the school and taking over the school. And then he's like a jail warden all of a sudden. It is just yeah, it is classic like. Vonnegut just crazy plotting just plot nuts you know Um, this is the book where the quote that I got my tattoo comes from as well oh I remembered uh, I looked it up it's the it's the uh, it's like the prologue or something like that and Vonnegut is speaking as the editor of this book like the quote unquote editor and he said to virtually all the author's idiosyncrasies I after much thought have applied what another author once told me was the most sacred word in a great editor's vocabulary that word is stet and stet is a it's stetton's latin for let it stand and yep. when an author when an ed- editor uses that it means the editor's going through they decide to change something the author said and then they go wait a minute i kind of liked it better the, the way it was before and they stet the change which means they undo it basically so this is this is vonnegut's little jab at book editors being oh, like yeah. just just let authors do their writing and right. i feel like i've taken that to heart i have a very 
non-invasive approach to editing books. Awesome. By this time, uh, a lot of things had happened in his personal life. Jane, unfortunately, passed away from cancer. Edie had divorced from Geraldo Rivera. And uh, Jill had and him were also getting divorced. And so uh, as we get into the 90s, he's kind of back on his own again and kind of he doesn't even he's not even under contract for another book at this point. Yeah. He's kind of loose on his own. In fact, uh, this section of his life is kind of a weird one in the biography I've been reading. Uh, the years 1992 to 2007 are labeled just waiting to die. <laughs> Which <laughs> I laughed when you told me that he, of course, or not, of course, he somehow becomes even more anti-war, anti-government during this time. He said, I am embarrassed. We are all embarrassed. We Americans have guided our destiny so clumsily with all the world watching that we must now protect against ourselves, against our own government and our own industries. And wow, could that have just been said today? And a lot of people would agree with it. This is the quote I love. This, this sums up to me. Everything that's wrong with the American political system, with elections in in this country, everything, period. This was about George McGovern failing to win the 1972 election. Of course, McGovern, big favorite to win. Another book I love about this election is Fear and Loathing on the Campaign Trail by Hunter S. Thompson. He goes through this whole campaign. He's trying to champion McGovern. McGovern. I love that book. Anyways, uh, Vonnegut said, he failed as an actor. He couldn't create on camera a character we could love or hate. So America voted to have his show taken off the air. The American audience doesn't care about an actor's private life, doesn't want his show continued simply because he's honorable and truthful and has the best interests of the nation at heart in private life. Only one thing matters. Can he jazz us up on camera? This is a national tragedy, of course, that we've changed from a society to an audience. And, uh, you know, literally an actor gets elected right after that with Ronald Reagan and then a reality star. I mean, he could not have been more on the nose when it comes to what yeah. I think is essentially the sham of the American election at this point. This is just Vonnegut being the absolute prophet of the 19th, the 20th century. Uh, like we just said before, how could someone, how could one person have held a, a generation in his mind so well as to say stuff like this that, that just endures. This uh, this next quote is, I think, another brilliant quote that, again, sees into the future and sees the resurgence of overt racism in the country and about the anger of white people that create, um, you know, create the results that we have today in a lot of ways. Vonnegut said his opponent had too powerful an issue, speaking of McGovern's opponent and Nixon. The terror and guilt and hatred white people feel for the descendants of victims who of an unbelievable crime we committed not long ago, human slavery. How's that for science fiction? There was this modern country with a wonderful constitution, and it kidnapped human beings and used them as machines. It's, it stopped it after a while, but by then it had millions of descendants of those kidnapped people all over the country. What if they turned out to be so human that they wanted revenge of some kind? So again, acting out of fear of this thing that was perpetuated by this group of people in the first place very very fascinating stuff uh and this is a lot of his stuff you know palm two what year did palm tuesday come out i should have written it down palm tuesday palm sunday palm sunday sorry about that that was back in the 70s that was yeah yeah that, oh that was his book in the 70s but man with no country or man without a country that's going to yeah. be his his final 
big release. Uh, but be- and the whole time he's um, giving tons of commencement speeches, tons of university appearances, and kind of still keeping that flame as the wizened cultural commentator with a heart of gold alive. In fact, his uh, I, I didn't I forgot about this until you we were just talking. His reputation as this sage was so profound that uh, do you remember that weird Boz Lerman song? Everyone's free to wear sunscreen. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, that like uh, move to L.A. but leave before it makes you soft. That was move a commencement speech, too, wasn't it? I think that he turned into. No, a... So here's the story. Um, actually, Mary, if you can play a chunk of that uh, viral novelty song from 1999, I think that'll <laughs> place this kind of thing. Live in New York City once, but leave before it makes you hard. Live in Northern California once, but leave before it makes you soft. Travel. Accept certain inalienable truths. Prices will rise. Politicians will philander. You too will get old. And when you do, you'll fantasize that when you were young, prices were reasonable, politicians were noble, and children respected their elders. So this was actually written by a Chicago Tribune columnist named Mary Schmitch. And uh, thanks to early internet viral email chains, uh, it was it was attributed to Kurt Vonnegut as a commencement address at MIT just to give it like extra wizened points. And it wasn't until like in recent years that people actually went ahead and found the actual source. But no, that wasn't uh, Kurt Vonnegut. But it just says, you know, that kind of folk wisdom, that kind of cavalier uh I don't know how to say this snackable profundity was just associated with his brand. I think that's a perfect way to describe it. <laughs> uh, Jake, do you have anything big before Time Quake's release in 1997? Uh, nothing great. I really tried to run out till the end, but it just, you know, at, at this, uh, his death is kind of, uh, you know, he was very, in Man Without a Country, he was just kind of, he knew what was happening. I believe he, it's, uh, we already quoted the thing about how he, like, railed against Paul Mall cigarettes for failing to deliver yes. on its promise to kill him. <laughs> to kill him all these yeah. years, which is hilarious. He, in all of his, like, final interviews, he talks about how he's suing Paul Mall and makes that joke. It's, it's <sighs> But it's a really good joke because they promised to kill him so long as they wrote the warnings on the package. Vonnegut said, I believe this is from Man Without a Country, uh, my country is in ruins, so I'm a fish in a poison bowl i'm mostly just heart sick about this there should have been hope this should have been a great country but we are despised all over the world now i was hoping to build a country and add to its literature that's why i served in world war ii and that's why i wrote books well he writes his final work of fiction time quake and released it in 1997 it is described by him as a stew that he struggled with for years. His it was his last book was seven years previous to this with Hocus Pocus. Kilgore Trout is again the main character, kind of, in a reality where a time quake puts citizens of 2001 back to 1991 to repeat every action they took back then. Vonnegut also appears in the book to be a part of a celebration of Kilgore Trout. Though it did not get reviewed very well critically, it sold quite well. Uh, I'm sure people were clamoring at this point. He's even more popular. His popularity is just gaining and gaining constantly. Of course, his last major work ends up being A Man Without a Country, published in 05. 
He was 82 at the time and wasn't planning on publishing like this again, but claims the Bush administration compelled him to do so in the new age of technology. He felt that George Bush's administration, George W. Bush's administration, was full of conscience-free psychopaths and, quote, guessers who don't let facts <laughs> affect their policies that are willing to enter, quote, an endless war, and also that there are, quote, barely closeted white supremacists in there as well. <laughs> It's so true. I mean, so it's I, it's, <laughs> it's stuff like that that like makes the fucking like uh, whenever I see like a rich uh, like well-off millionaire be like, you know what? It, it, nowadays makes me almost miss George W. Bush. Like makes yeah. me so fucking mad. <laughs> like that Ellen thing where she's like eating peanuts at the baseball game. I was just like, oh, <laughs> Grandpa Kurt would be so mad at Ellen right now. <laughs> so. Here's a here's a quote from Vonnegut. I have a few more quotes before we get into his, a couple more quotes before we get into his death and wrap things up here. Uh, but here's some loftier, lighter, more compelling quote, more uh, and maybe inspiring quotes than his very just bitter, albeit very truthful musings during this end period of his life. I always say to people, practice an art, no matter how well or badly you do it, because then you have the experience of becoming and it makes your soul grow. That includes singing, dancing, writing, drawing, playing a musical instrument. One thing I hate about school committees today is that they cut arts programs out of the curriculum because they say the arts aren't a way to make a living. Well, there are lots of things worth doing that are no way to make a living. They are agreeable ways to make a more agreeable life. Uh, but one, of course, must show up to do it. He also says, I just sit and wait to see what's inside me. And that's the case for writing or for drawing. And then it, out it comes. And I, I think a lot of people talk about this. All You just have to show up. You have to do it every day, but you have to show up. You have to sit your ass in front of a blank document and just fucking let it ho hopefully come to you. Just fucking do that, though. And uh, and you will create something, but it is a job. I like this quote in context of his drawings too, because his drawings have become so iconic in a way. Mm -hmm. But they're so simple and basic, but they they really do have a style to them all their own. And he clearly wasn't a great artist, but he still liked to doodle, and he still managed to come up with a style that was all his own. I re can recognize Vonnegut now as yeah. as a visual artist, which is yeah. uh, you know that's a. That's a big trick to pull off as a novelist in terms of his approach to novels or his viewpoint on novels. I love this quote. It's so true. It's what I think uh, really is the difference between reading and all these other things you, you can do. It's an art form for very few people because only a few people can read very well. I've said that to open a novel is to arrive in a music hall and be handed a viola. You have to perform. To stare at horizontal lines of phonetic symbols and Arabic numbers and to be able to put a, on a show in your head, it requires the reader to perform. If you can do it, you can go wailing in the South Pacific with Herman Melville or you can watch Madame Bovary make a mess of her life in Paris. Uh, so here we go. On April 11, 2007, Vonnegut died in his New York brownstone due to brain injuries he suffered from a fall. He was 84 years old. In 2008, the Kurt Vonnegut Society was founded, which is a group of scholars, teachers, and readers dedicated to the academic study of Vonnegut, his life and works. And definitely, whenever I get to Indianapolis, maybe hopefully for a Wizard of the Bruiser live show or something like that, I'm absolutely going to visit the Kurt Vonnegut Memorial Library, which was established in 2010. 
and was opened, of course, like I said, in Indianapolis, serving as an educational resource, museum, art gallery, and reading room dedicated to the works of Kurt Vonnegut. So I think they'll probably have some Vonnegut original um, paintings and or drawings and things like that as well with the art yeah, gallery. Yeah, I had no idea this existed. Mm-hmm. I would love to see this. Yeah, I definitely want to go. Maybe we'll take a field trip sometime, Drew. That should be fun. Yeah. I, heard, I heard Indianapolis is actually quite a lot of fun. I think uh, Marcus and Carolina went there for a separate Garfield-related trip. Um, <laughs> we got into how Garfield owns the entire state of Indiana <laughs> to the point where then-Governor Mike Pence actually, like, wrote a... had like Oh, no. Mike Pence had a congressional Garfield day introduced because Jim Davis is so cr- clutch for the economy of Indiana. Better not have been on a Monday, am I right? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Uh, All right, this is uh, the quote I wanted to end on. Do you have anything else to say before I say it? It's essentially a repeat of a previous quote, just put in a uh, more concise way, but I love the quote. Uh, I just wanted to shout out the book And So It Goes, Kurt Vonnegut, A Life by Charles J. Shields. Fantastic stuff. You came in with so much stuff that I had not found anywhere, Jake. Even if you're not familiar with, or I get, no, you have to be familiar with his work, but just a really in-depth <laughs> look at the life, the very real, very human, very flawed life of a so-called great man of American literature. And it's uh, it gives you a deeper appreciation for the writings we have. And uh, it's honestly, it's long and it hurt me to read this much. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so glad I forced you to read a bunch this last <laughs> couple of weeks. And so is Drew, of course. A reading enthusiast, uh, Drew. Hey man, thank do you again you want. for doing this. If you don't this. want to read, that's fine. Fuck it, dude. Audible, bro. <laughs> Go to Audible. They do not sponsor us, but whatever. I'll give them a shout out. Uh, all right. Here's the quote, and then we'll close it out. Vonnegut, uh, just to really hit it home. The arts are not a way to make a living. They are a very human way of making life more bearable. Practice in art, no matter how well or badly, is a way to make your soul grow for heaven's sake. That is our episode on Kurt Vonnegut. Thank you so much. Our part two, that is, rather. Mm-hmm. Uh, we hope you enjoyed it. We'll be back next week with something very un uh, unwriterly, I'm sure. Something <laughs> animated, perhaps. Until then, uh, thank you again, Drew. Thank you so much for joining us for two episodes. Taking all this time out of your uh, day and out of your week to hang out with us is incredibly appreciated. It was a pleasure, guys. Thanks for having me around. Hell yeah. Uh, you can check me out, twitch.tv forward slash holdenatorsho. Uh, uh, you can check out Andrew Yakira on Twitter. Is it at the two L the L two hundredster? Nope. Yeah, yeah. The L two hundredster. I always forget to throw that L in there. It's it looks like <laughs> the rooster, but it's spelled with an L and a two hundred. The L two hundredster on Twitter. Check him out. He's got a lot of great stuff on there. Um, also patreon.com forward slash Whizbrew weekly episodes five dollars a month. Thank you, thank you. We've had. Some really awesome uh, signups uh, lately. I, I guess people like the, our little show. Uh, you guys are the best. It really does make our lives more livable, literally, because we need that money. Uh, badly <laughs> That's, to live there's it. no more. There's, there is no more in there. Else. It is. It's just what it is. Uh, Jake? Follow me on Twitter at Best Jake Young to see all of my various uh, doodles and doddles. And uh, once again, uh, you gotta, you gotta get on this Patreon, folks. I'm, there's bo- so many bonus episodes. We're, we're talking about everything. We get into the Snyder Cut. Oh, yeah. Want, yeah. You want to hear two guys on the internet talk about the <laughs> Snyder Cut? Ugh. Only on Patreon will you be able to make that a reality. It's like he made me think about it, and then we talk about <laughs> it. All right. Anyways, take care, everybody. Always remember. 
keep on whizzing. Never stop bruising. This show is made possible by listeners like you. Thanks to our ad sponsors. You can support our shows by supporting them. For more shows like the one you just listened to, go to lastpodcastnetwork.com. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. Sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Donald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. (laughs) 